And I often say that I think the most successful fintech in Brazil over the last couple of years has been the central bank. <laughs> you know, and, and I think um, Roberto Campos, who's the central bank president, I think is probably the most entrepreneurial you know, fintech founder out there. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fintech Leaders Podcast, where we learn from today's global leaders in fintech, business, and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. My guest today is Julio Vasconcelos, managing partner and founder of Atlantico, or Atlantico in Portuguese, one of the largest venture capital firms in Latin America that looks to invest in a better future for the region and beyond. Julio is also a seasoned tech entrepreneur and investor, having been Facebook's first country lead for Brazil, co-founded Pace Urbano, which scaled to 1,200 people and raised hundreds of millions of dollars, and then joining Benchmark as an entrepreneur in residence. In this episode, we discuss parallels with today's Latin American tech scene and Silicon Valley 15 years ago, back when Julio was in the middle of Silicon Valley's heart, Atlantico's Latin America Digital Transformation Report. This episode is being published the same day as Atlantico's annual report on the tech trends of Latin America. What were the highlights of 2022? Why Brazil is one of the most attractive fintech markets, not just in Latin, but around the world, and how the central bank played a key role in developing this thriving ecosystem the incredible fintech and tech opportunity to empower SMBs and unlock a lot of value for small enterprises and build massive tech companies in the process and just a lot more. And now I hope you enjoy this inspiring conversation with Julio from Atlantico. Well, Julio, welcome to the Fintech Leaders Podcast. Uh, very excited to have you joining us all the way from, is it Sao Paulo? I'm in Rio today, Miguel. Thanks for, thanks for having me. And I love for the listeners here, Miguel's wearing a beautiful pen hat, which is my alma mater. So I'm a big fan of the show, so I'm happy to be on. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, super proud uh, Wharton Penn alum and, and even happier to be interviewing a, a fellow alum. Uh, so, so, Julio... Um, Welcome from the beautiful Rio. For for the audience, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about your background. Um, and I, I think you have an especially interesting background because you you had that transition from founder entrepreneur to founder of a venture capital fund. Yeah, so you're right. I, I spent the last 15 years or so as an entrepreneur, as a founder and operator in you know various tech companies, you know, started out uh, working in Silicon Valley. I had moved out west to go to Stanford for for business school, uh, and basically ended up staying in tech ever since. I worked at a small social networking startup out there in the Bay Area, and then eventually made my way over to Facebook. This is end of '09, actually beginning of 2010 is when I uh, eventually got shipped down to Brazil, where I'm originally from, uh, sort of wearing that Facebook hat. And, and, and just to give this, give a little bit of context at the time, you know, Facebook had 
probably some hundreds of employees. I'm guessing 500 or so employees, a small, relatively small company, obviously, to what it is today. It was really just starting to step on the gas pedal as far as international expansion. They really wanted someone to go and focus on growing Brazil. So I was brought on as the sort of first person to oversee Latin America, but really with a mandate from the growth team to go down and help Brazil grow. Uh, so I moved down to Brazil and, you know, from day one, already wanted to go and start my own thing. And, and that's, you know, exactly what I did a few months later, started a company called Pesci Urbano. That was a, a local services company. Uh, you know, we started out with the daily deal model that, you know, Groupon had pioneered in the U.S. And then we, we copied and brought down to, to Brazil. But ultimately wanted to do everything in local. We did, you know, daily deals, we did food delivery, we did restaurant reservations, we did local content. It was really kind of this one-stop shop for you to discover what was best in your in your city. Um, and and the Pace Urbano uh, story was very much a roller coaster ride. We we had a, an initial period of just insane hyper growth, similar to what, what Groupon had. Just to give you some some sense of the scale, it was me and my co-founder here in the beautiful uh, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, working out of his living room. And two years later, we were over 1,200 employees across six different countries in all of Latin America. You know, company was doing over $100 million of, of revenue a year. So from, you know, every sense of it was, was a pretty scaled company. And, you know, as the daily deal model eventually proved to be unsustainable, we quickly found ourselves in, in turnaround mode, right? Companies, you know, demand going down, sales going down, margins compressing, like sort of everything that could go wrong went wrong in a very short amount of time. And, you know, I think we were, we were lucky to be able to react quickly, cut costs and turn around the company, get it back to profitability, uh, and eventually got acquired about a year after that by Baidu which was leaving China, wanted to leave search, wanted to go into Latin America, even though we had shrunk the company by almost two thirds from the peak, we still were selling to over a million people every month. So like huge consumer base, active consumer base. And so for them was a, a no brainer. That was, you know, sort of the, the end of my entrepreneurial experience in, in Latin America. And at that point, I moved back to the Bay Area, to the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, and went and took a, a job as an entrepreneur in residence at, at Benchmark Capital, which had been our backers at Pace Urbano, uh, and spent a few months there, I think trying to soak up as much knowledge of investing as I, as I possibly could from some folks that were honestly, you know, probably still are some of the best in the business. Uh, and through that, ended up joining as the founding CEO of a company called Prefer, looking at the, the future of work and trying to you know, reinvent what that platform for the future of work or work in the 21st century would look like. We started the company, co-founded it with a guy called Scott Belsky, who had started Behance, today is at Adobe, sort of one of the, the great product leaders out there who had just joined Benchmark as a, as a general partner. So ran that company uh, in San Francisco. Half the team was actually in San Francisco and half the team was where you are in, in New York City because that was our first market. Uh, but we ran the company for three years and never really got to the kind of product market fit we we wanted, and eventually decided to to shut it down. And that's when I decided to just dive headfirst into investing. Investing is something I've been doing for over ten years. Started out as a sort of as an angel and seed investor with a few friends from uh, the Stanford days. We had a, a, a just a proprietary fund called Graph Ventures, um, investing in literally uh, uh, hundreds of companies all over the world. And eventually migrated to starting the first seed fund uh, in Brazil. Uh, joined four other colleagues, uh, four other friends, really, um, and started Canary. This is about 
uh, five years ago, and Canary's become since then, you know, the dominant seed fund. So when I decided to move back, I said, "Look, I'm, uh, you know, I, I don't want to go full time into seed. It wasn't, you know, the the thing I wanted to do. I still, you know, obviously continue, you know, being active and involved with Canary. Everything that I do, you know, seed stage in Latin America, I do, I do with them. Uh, but really wanted to focus all my time on doing, you know, more classic early stage investing. Call it, you know, Series A investing, and started at Planchico, uh to do that about three years ago, and we're we're about 75% of the way through fund one, you know, probably we'll start investing fund two by the end of this year. Um, you know, and super excited to be able to do something that, that I really love and having made this, this successful shift from, you know, being a serial entrepreneur to now, you know, a professional venture investor. A, a lot to unpack. Great, great story, great journey so far. I, a lot of the people listening, they're entrepreneurs themselves and, and they're going through, you know, some tough times these days, particularly 2022. I, I wanted to zoom in on two of your difficult decisions that you mentioned. One for Pace Urbano, which was cutting two-thirds of the staff. That must have been challenging, to say the least. And number two, uh, you know, actually closing down Prefer. Uh, maybe take us through through those decisions and, and your kind of how you struggled with it internally. Yeah, so let's talk about um, the Pace Urbano story. And, you know, cu curiously, th this this thing that I refer to as the this roller coaster ride is actually, you know, it was, it was very interesting. It was a very interesting experience that uh, after I graduated from Stanford, the business school there wrote a, a, a sort of a three part case on, on Pace Urbano. And the part A is called the roller coaster ride. Um, and, you know, part B is, is a lot about just sort of cutting costs and turning around the company and focusing on efficiency, something that, frankly, most founders today are, are having to do, you know, much because the, the, the market has, has radically changed from what we had last year, which was a similar experience to what we had, right? We were starting and scaling a company in what at the time was billed as, you know, the best business model of all time. You had Andrew Mason, the CEO and founder of, of Groupon on the cover of, I think it was Fortune Magazine and Groupon being labeled as the fastest growing company in history uh, to probably a year later, it was, you know, one of the worst business models uh, of all time when, when the world basically discovered, and I think we all discovered that the, the early, early data, you know, wasn't, wasn't sustainable. So making that, making that choice to, you know, radically cut staff and cut costs, to be honest, wasn't so difficult because we knew that if we didn't make it, the company wasn't going to survive. So it was very much um, a matter of survival at that point. And we knew that, sure, it was going to be you know super painful to let go of all these people that had contributed so much to the company. A lot of them were you know good personal friends of mine. But if we didn't make that hard choice, everyone else would be out of a job, right? So it's a little bit of you you know cutting your limb to be able to you know survive as a as a as a human as a person. Uh, so the process is, is tough, right? You know, kind of going through that Excel sheet of all the names and picking which ones you're going to cut and sort of thinking back about what you're going to do is, is obviously, you know, emotionally very tiring and, and very tough. But I think that what, what gave us the strength to do it and, and here, you know, me and my co-founder was a lot of this mindset of, look, we, we started this, now we're going to end it. Uh, and we knew that we were fighting for the people that had helped us build this, right? The employees. And I think that was oftentimes kind of the North stars. How do we make this company successful? How do we make sure these people not only sort of keep their jobs, but they can be sort of financially and professionally successful in the long term? And that requires making really tough choices. 
uh, and making difficult cuts in the short term. So I think that having that clarity of thought and having that North Star of who we were fighting for, I think was extremely, was extremely helpful. But obviously, the, like you said, the process was hard. You know, I think with, with Prefer, the decision to shut down the company was, I think, equally, equally challenging. Um, because after, you know, three years, we probably launched, you know, half a dozen different versions of the product and iterated and pivoted and had different clients and different things. I mean, honestly, we're just three years of, of trial and error. And at the end of that, we just honestly just didn't have a product that we felt people really, you know, wanted to use in the way that we, 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 we expected. Um, and we were a little bit out of out of ideas, I think out of ideas of sort of how how to solve this problem. Obviously, it's a you know massive opportunity, but if it were an easy problem to solve, other people would have done it. And I think we were one more group that you know tried but uh, failed in in solving and addressing this problem of like how to you know build the 21st century version of the firm. Uh, so we ran out of ideas, and I think honestly, also ran out of steam. I think after three years of just trying and nothing nothing's happening and nothing's working, I, I do feel the team. Um, was just getting a little tired. You know, we, we didn't have a lot of people leaving, but I could feel that I was tired. So other people were tired. And I think starting, starting a successful startup requires this unbelievable level of, of optimism and energy, you know, when things are going well. So if you have people that aren't excited and they aren't motivated, it's definitely not going to work, right? You, you, you need to be almost on the entirely other side of that spectrum. So at the end of the day, it, it ended up being a, a, an easy choice. We still had almost about half the money that we had raised. Uh, and we said, look, why, like, what's the point of just squandering the rest of this money and kind of blowing it on marketing and all these artificial ways of growing? It's not a, it's not a prudent use of our investors' money. You know, we, if we don't believe that we can solve this problem anymore, let's shut this down. Let's move on. Let's return the capital, return the time to the employees that can go on and move and do other things. And that's what we did. So again, it was a painful process, but I think it was a uh, it was a very logical discussion uh, between me and my co-founders, and I think we all came to the same conclusion. Julio, today you have a front row seat at what's going on in the tech scene in, in Latin America. Maybe tell us how you see it compared to Silicon Valley a decade ago, where you also had a front row seat. You know, What are some of the parallels that you're seeing today with Latin America tech and Silicon Valley and, and also maybe some of the differences. What's what's unique about it? So I, I first moved out to Silicon Valley in 2005. Uh, and, and, and to put this in, in context, you know, you had the dot-com boom and, and bust. And you had this this period, this sort of this hangover period for a few years when you know, nothing new uh, of note was really getting started uh, in Silicon Valley, or at least not, not nearly in the kind of scale that we saw sort of in the decade that followed. Uh, I remember, you know, uh, in the second week that I was there, I went to see a talk by uh, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, who had just turned 21, uh, talking about Facebook, you know, on the Sanford campus. There was, you know, 50 people there. Like afterwards, you know, went up to, to Mark and spoke to him for a while. Like it was very, it was very small, right? It's just like everything was smaller scale. Everyone was very accessible, right? You would go to, I don't know, fresh yogurt, you know, uh, in Palo Alto, and you would see Steve Jobs having a frozen yogurt, right? It was just like, it was smaller, it was more familiar. Um, I, I, I think it was, it was less uh, financially driven. I think it was a lot of people that were really passionate about technology and innovation and entrepreneurship and kind of really wanted to do it because of that, right? The year that I moved there was the year that 
you know, Skype had just been sold for, I forget what it was, like a billion dollars or $2 billion. And YouTube had just been sold to Google. I think it was also like kind of, a, you know, around $2 billion. Uh, and everyone was saying, oh, that's insane. How can Google pay so much money for YouTube, right? It's like everything was just like a, a whole different scale from what we have today. Um, so it was, it was small, right? And you could access anyone you wanted in Silicon Valley pretty easily. You could sit down with, you know, Eric Schmidt and Zuckerberg and all these people that were to around the Stanford campus or elsewhere. Um, and, you know, I think it was just more of a community to, to that extent before it grew so large. And I think what what I saw or what I see actually today in Latin America is, is that it looks very much like, you know, Silicon Valley in that, you know, 2005 through 2010 period. You know, it's people that are really passionate about what they're building and about entrepreneurship. It's a small group. It's very tight knit, right? Everyone knows everyone. Uh, you have access to everyone. Um, and, and people have this, this sort of very idealistic, not in the negative sense, but idealistic in, in, in kind of thinking about how they're going to go and, you know, make their own dent in the universe and have a big impact and how it really sort of transform the local economy and society. So I do feel the people that are there are sort of those early, early builders and pioneers that really care about what they're building. Uh, and you still have a lot of that sense of community where people go and they get together and they talk and they, you know, share information and they sort of share learnings and kind of everyone's in it together for kind of the good of the entrepreneurial community, which looks a lot like what it used to be in, in Silicon Valley before I think this massive boom we had over the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, and, and and by the way, we're publishing, we're recording earlier, but we're publishing this on September 20th, which is the same day that you're also publishing your Atlantico Latam digital report. Um, I, I read the, the past one, it was fantastic. Um, this one seems to be also amazing. And, and you basically take a deep dive into what's going on in, in Latin America's tech scene. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that, right? Um, and maybe we can zoom in on, on Brazil because um, that's your, your home turf. Um, and Brazil seems to be a, a fintech leader worldwide. When I get asked, why do I invest in Latin America? You know, I, I explain to people Brazil is, is not just one of the best fintech markets in Latin America, but around the world, right? Maybe take us through some of the reasons that you're seeing why fintech has been thriving for about a decade in, in Brazil. Yeah. So, you know, to put it into context, you know, you mentioned about Brazil in particular, Brazil is obviously, you know, the biggest country and economy in, in Latin America, you know, by, by far, as far as a, like, I think maturity of the tech ecosystem I think we probably started in Brazil a good, you know, five six years, you know, in earnest ahead of the the other countries. I think the, the big exception, obviously, is Argentina. You know, Argentina is definitely the pioneer with Mercado Libre during that dot com boom, and I think a lot of great entrepreneurship. But but Brazil always had to scale, and was where the Argentinian entrepreneurs that would start companies that would be where they would soon after uh, um, evolve their their companies to because it was the big market. If you look at venture dollars today. You know, Brazil comprises about half of the of the region, and is you know more than twice as big as you know the second country, which is which is Mexico. You know, we we at Atlantico we invest uh, throughout the region, so we're you know a Latin American early stage uh, venture fund, but really probably sixty to seventy percent of what we do we we think is going to be uh, in Brazil, uh, and why why Brazil and why fintech in Brazil in particular? Fintech has been 
hovering in that 40 to 50% of venture dollars and deals uh, every year. So it's almost half of everything that's happening in Brazil. Last year, it was 42% of all venture dollars went to went to fintech. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. And, 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 let's, and let's zoom back. Let's sort of rewind back 10 years ago when you had you know, Nubank starting, you had Stone starting, you had Pagasuguru starting. You know, these are sort of three large fintechs that are all now publicly listed companies in, in U.S. stock exchanges, all, you know, at one point or another worth, you know, tens of billions of dollars. Um, wh- why was this happening? And I think it was it was a mix of, of a couple things. One, I think it was uh, structural. Right, you know, uh, if you look at uh, the Brazilian banking sector, just to take one one example, but you know, payments actually uh, mirrors this because a lot of the biggest payment acquirers were owned by the biggest banks. You know, you have a you have a a, a record level of concentration among the the biggest banks, right? The, the biggest banks in Brazil make up over you know eighty percent of you know banking deposits and activity and accounts. Uh, the top five biggest banks. Um, and, and, and what that translated to over the years was also, you know, record levels of return on equity when you think about how, how just how profitable these banks were. And what this meant was, was that you had a, a structure in the market that looked much more like an oligopoly than sort of true competition. And I, I don't mean that in a, in a negative sense, just the way that the, just the way that the industry evolved and a lot of it through help of the government as different banks would fail and the big, the big banks would then sort of buy out those banks and roll them up, um, you know, not in a monopolistic move, but that's how it ended up. Uh, and what that meant was that because you had such huge barriers to entry from, from new entrants, uh, you meant that the banks could, you know, provide customers with, frankly, products that were of a lower quality than they should have been, and at higher prices. So the quality of, you know, fintech, not fintech, of you know, financial services in Brazil was very low, uh, and therefore was ripe for disruption. Right? You have a massive market, super profitable, and where the quality is low and the cost is high. Um, so that's, you know, stage one, and that's both with payments and with, with banking, right? And banking, I'm including everything in credit from, you know, credit cards, uh, current accounts, investing is a little bit different. So, you know, we can talk about that later if you'd like. Um, and as soon as the, uh, regulators pave the way for innovation, and this is changing the law to sort of make, make competition much more friendly. This is mostly, uh, in the central bank of Brazil that has been incredibly pro innovation since uh, a decade ago and continues to be. So, uh, they allowed many things about opening up accounts digitally, uh, being pro competition. And that sort of opened the door doors for, uh, innovators and entrepreneurs like, like David Velas, right. Who started new bank, like the guys at, at neon, like the guys at, you know, stone, uh, that, that did payments and, and many, many others uh, that came after them, uh, to, you know, provide a service that was better quality and cheaper price. Right. So take, you know, new banks, first product flagship product was a credit card. It was a credit card that was free, right. That was sort of the big pitch of it really. And, and it's amazing to think that, Hey, there were no free credit cards in Brazil at the time. So, you know, perhaps it wasn't surprising that they started getting a massive wait list of people that wanted it. And then when people called and they had a problem with their credit card, they would be treated well by customer support or they would be able to access their credit card and their bill through through an app. It was actually, you know, the, it was a pretty low bar that they had to surpass in order to provide what was a, you know, what it was and it continues to be an amazing product at a very competitive and cheap price. Uh, so that's a little bit of what, why that happens. And I think that a lot of that uh, persists, right? You know, I was looking at the at this year's report before we started our our conversation here, and I was noticing also when when you look at 
um, access to financial services in Brazil today, in you know, 2020, 2021, you, you have something in, in Latin America where you had only um, about half the people had a loan out. You know, compare that to, you know, uh, you know 24% of Americans didn't have a loan, right? So 75% of Americans had some form of credit. So access to credit in the US is, is almost uh, twice as much as it is in Latin America. When you look at, you know, banking, people that are unbanked or underbanked, you have about 20, about a quarter of Latin Americans are unbanked, you know, by some definition of unbanked or underbanked versus 5% in the US, right? So even though we've, we've grown so much over this last decade, there's still so much more to happen. And that's why we continue to be super excited and investing in, in, in fintech, looking at things, um, you know, in credit and embedded fintech and, you know, real estate in investing, everything really kind of getting transformed within this, within this space. Saying that the central bank is pro-innovation, and I always often say that they are actually entrepreneurial, is hard to believe for a lot of people, right? Uh, let's uh, and and there are very clear examples of why the Brazilian central bank is so good, right? And and probably one of the favorites, and probably my favorite, is Pix, which is a real-time payments system that was launched less than two years ago and is eating the payments scene in Brazil, right? Uh, maybe let's talk about that. And how do you envision PICS kind of evolving if its success continues the way it has been? Yeah, so I, I agree with you. And I often say that I think the most successful fintech in Brazil over the last couple of years has been the central bank. <laughs> you know, and, and I think um, Roberto Campos, who's the central bank president, I think is probably the most entrepreneurial, you know, fintech founder out there. And it's amazing that this has happened w within sort of a like a regulator. Right. Like that's like you said, it's potentially you know, sort of unprecedented. Um, and I think that the central bank's innovation agenda and, and within that you have both uh, picks. And you have uh, what used to be called open banking, but now it's called open finance, right? So there's interoperability between the different uh, players in the financial system in order to promote uh, greater competition and therefore greater access to better and cheaper financial services for the population at large. But incredibly, incredibly successful. Just to give you some numbers of picks, like you mentioned, and for, for maybe some of the listeners that don't know how picks works, said it's, you know, said it's instant, it's free. It's 24-7 way for you to transfer money from, you know, one person to another or one business to another or a person to a business between any, any two points. And you can do that uh, through your own unique identifier that you register. For example, if you sent me um, a PIX, you can send it to my email account. You can send it to my phone number. You can send it to my own sort of personal identification number or uh, the sort of a randomly defined number that I create. And you can go on any banking app or any digital wallet. And that option for you to send a pics to someone is there and it's on that homepage and it's prominent. And this is actually part of part of the regulation that the central bank uh, put forth to basically uh, bootstrap the, the network, right? You know, payments are, are, are networks um, and networks are more valuable the more people that are on them. And it's amazing to see how you kind of solve that cold start problem if you're a regulator with regulatory power and say, we will be ubiquitous because I said so and therefore put that button everywhere. And that's kind of what the central bank did. Um, and you, you can send that with, you know, a few taps of your button on your phone to anyone out there. You can do it via QR code. You can do it via, via anything. And like you mentioned, 
you know, UPI in India, which is India's uh, instant payment system, was has often been sort of billed as the biggest success case of you know instant free payments and you know peer to peer payments. But just to give you a sense, uh, PIX in Brazil achieved um, you know the the mark of a billion transactions over those rails in about a quarter of the time than India did. And recall that Brazil has about a sixth of the population of India. Um, you know, we're probably, as we're recording this, you're probably seeing, you know, one of the first months where a billion, uh, sorry, a trillion reais are going to be transacted a month uh, on picks. Uh, that's about, you know, $200 billion a month of, of transactions. Uh, over half of the population of the entire population has registered on PICS. And I think one of the interesting uh, pieces of data that we showed, you know, you, you made a little bit of this, this joke of, you know, you know, PICS is eating payments. We, we, we borrow, we sort of were inspired by Mark Andreessen's famous quote of, you know, software is eating the world. And we talked a little bit about, you know, PICS is eating digital payments, right? And PICS today is the biggest form of digital payments ahead of credit cards, sort of tied with, with debit card, way ahead of all these other legacy digital payments. But I think PICS isn't just eating digital payments. PICS is eating all payments. We did this um, original survey now that's representative of the Brazilian population, and we saw that PICS is now tied with cash as the form of payment that Brazilians use most often on a, on a daily basis. Uh, and Pix is growing a ton, right? So when if we were to record this in six months, Pix will probably be ahead of cash and everything else as the way that people transfer money uh, in Brazil. And then you asked me kind of what opportunities does that open up? And, you know, as a as an investor, at least our, our point of view at Atlantico is that it's not really our responsibility or not really our place to be trying to predict the future or inventing the future. We're much more here to have our doors open for when you know founders uh, are trying to reinvent the future and knock on our door with a great idea that we could have never thought of. We're here to, to back them and support them in, in, in making that vision a reality. Um, and we think that PIX is, is such a tectonic shift when you think about uh, payments and, and, the, and the system that a lot of things are going to change. And I think really creative entrepreneurs are going to think about how do I use this potentially as a wedge for me to go into the financial services sector, maybe it's payments, maybe it's transfers, maybe it's whatever it is. Uh, but because things are shifting, maybe that creates a little bit of a crack that I can go into as an entrepreneur and build a new product. Maybe that product is better, maybe it's cheaper, maybe I get some kind of distribution advantage, and I can and I can grow on the back of that. And we and we've seen a number of uh, sort of early stage founders do that and do that successfully. And I think that we're we're only scratching the surface in terms of what's going to get built uh, atop PIX. And you can ask, well, PIX is, is free, right? Actually, the central bank uh, mandates that peer-to-peer payments is free. And they're the ones that are paying for, for the rails, for the PIX rails. Uh, but there's a lot of other free things out there that you'd be able to build, you know, successful business models on top of. I think open source probably is the most interesting one, right? Like the software is free, but you have, you know, MongoDB, and you have all these other uh, amazing companies that have built something on top of it. And I think that PIX might go in that direction of either entrepreneurs harnessing it as a distribution mechanism and as a wedge to get distribution and, and sort of get acceptance, or maybe build business models atop PIX that are able to monetize and, and build new business models there. So I think this question of what happens when payment is truly, truly digital and does have this marginal cost equal to zero um, element that we we you know, rarely see around the world, what kind of innovation comes from that? And we're super excited to be, you know, investing on, on in that future.
really fascinating stuff. Uh, Julia, you, you uh, Anna, your team, you, you were kind enough to show me a, a preview of your uh, upcoming report. And something that I really paid attention to is the, the section about SMBs in Latin America. Um, and um, essentially, it's the, the proportion of SMBs in the economy as compared to a market like the U.S. in Latin America is much higher, yet they contribute significantly less to GDP. Let's, let's talk a little bit about why do you think that is uh, and how tech is helping SMBs become more and more productive. Yeah, th that's uh, definitely true. Uh, the, the, the number, the specific numbers, just to put it a little bit in context of call it sort of the, the, the micro businesses, right? The smallest of the SMBs. You know, in the U.S., they they comprise around seventy nine percent of all businesses in the U.S. So even in the U.S., they're you know so the overwhelming majority. Obviously, this is like on a on a numbers basis. Uh, but when you look at uh, Latin America, you have Brazil that has about eighty five percent of the businesses are SMBs, and then when you shift over to countries like Mexico and Colombia, you know these numbers are above ninety percent of their businesses are sort of micro micro businesses. We we call them right, and and, and the distribution between micro and small and, and medium it's all more in Latin America than than it is in a, in a developed country like the U.S. Uh, but now shifting to you know what's the contribution of these businesses to the economy? So let's see what's the contribution of these businesses to the GDP of the country. You know, in the U.S., um, you know, these micro businesses contribute or SMBs as a whole, right, uh, contribute about 44 percent of GDP. So about half of the U.S.'s GDP comes from SMBs, where when you look at Latin America, where there's more SMBs, only 25 percent of the GDP comes from SMBs. So there's more and they make less money. And, and I think part of that is because productivity is lower. You know, we have some data in the report around productivity and we, you know, splice that data in every possible way you can imagine. Um, but what we identified as some of the key themes that have been holding up SMBs and, and their increase in productivity, a lot of them are, are related to technology. And that's, again, we, we highlighted this chapter on SMBs because we think the SMB digitalization movement or transformation that's happening is probably one of the areas that's that has the most potential in, in Latin America. Uh, and as you take software and take technology and you use that to increase productivity and increase access and solve these problems, I think massive businesses are already getting uh, created in that sector and will continue to be created. You know, taking the um, the angle here of just fintech, right? Uh, you know, access to capital is probably one of the biggest barriers that SMBs have in Latin America compared to their peers in more developed countries. We have some data there on just what the shortage is uh, of credit uh, and capital for SMBs. But it doesn't stop there, right? We, we, we see the high demand that SMBs have of how do they use, you know, software to help them sell more, right? Imagine you're kind of a corner shop and you want to be able to sell more through digital channels, through online. You have you know, a Brazilian unicorn, a company called Olist, that basically does that, says, look, I'll syndicate your products uh, through all the different marketplaces online. I'll put you on Mercado Libre and Magalu and Submarino, et cetera, and I'll help you sell more, right, through through the advent of, you know, software and, and digitalization. I think you have another thing, which is looking at, you know, business processes, right? How do you just run your business better? You know, we, we invested in a company uh, just recently called uh, Fudo, 
which is uh, like a restaurant management sy- system paired with a, a POS solution. So think of sort of the Toast model or, or maybe even the Square model uh, in the U.S. And these guys are the leaders uh, for uh, for this sector uh, throughout Latin America. They have over 10,000 uh, restaurants on their platform. But the way that they went in was through software, right? They said, you're a restaurant. You want to have better processes. We'll help you, you know, allocate tables. We'll help you get orders from the waiters and send it to the kitchen. We'll help you uh, buy better, right? And and there's tons of these different uh, software solutions that are improving, you know, SMB productivity through business processes. And and I think the last one that I touched on, even when, when I was talking about the, the Fudo example is also just the ability to procure, right? So procurement, and you see this rise of even sort of B2B marketplaces, right? That was a, a huge theme all around the world, I don't know, last year and this year. And I think a lot of these companies continue continue to grow. And Latin America was no different. You have B2B marketplaces for you to buy, you know, apparel, you know, companies like Zacks that help small retail retailers buy apparel to be able to sell in their shops, Um you know, procurement for, for restaurants, right? You have Cayena in Brazil, you have Frubana uh, out of Colombia that are helping restaurants and small stores be able to buy, buy better, cheaper, faster, with better credit. Um, so the proliferation of these businesses, whether they're marketplaces or softwares or uh, fintechs that are helping SMBs thrive is, is an enormous opportunity and we think is going gonna, is gonna to persist in the years to come. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Cayena. That's uh, one of our investments at uh, Gilgamesh Ventures. And and it's not just them, it's most of the portfolio um, in Latin America because just the the opportunity is massive. And and some of the most experienced founders, you know, they, they're, they're coming from this wave that was building fintech for the consumer. And now probably a majority of founders are starting to focus on the enterprise, on the B2B so it's a, an, an exciting trend to, to keep following. Uh, Julio, so before I let you go, let, let's talk a, a little bit about how you envision the, the next couple of years in, in Latin America and, and also, you know, how, how do you envision the, the venture capital industry um, evolving in the region? So let me give you the... Um the long-term view, right? You have to you have to imagine in the way that we started this conversation that I kind of dropped my my life up in uh, San Francisco and Silicon Valley, kind of closed my close up shop there, closed my house, and sort of moved myself and my family back down to Brazil to basically bet the next you know twenty plus years that Latin America was going to be the future of technology uh, or one of the areas that would be the most exciting in the world as far as technology growth. And and, and there's some numbers that, again, I'd, l- I'd like to share because I think one thing is me saying that. The other thing I think is the numbers often you know, speak for themselves as to why Latin America is so exciting. We we publish every year uh, what we called uh, the Atlantico Digital Transformation uh, Index, right, where we try to compare the level of, of digital transformation, or level the digital penetration, let's say, across different countries of the world. Uh, and the way we look at that is we, we just look at the value of all the public tech companies that come out of that country, right? I think is a good proxy for how, how big and, and important those companies are, the tech companies, and compare that to the GDP, right? Just to, you know, have a, a, a basis for a comparison. Um, and that gives us this number of index. And when you look at, you know, a country like the United States, that is, I think, inarguably the most advanced 
um, in terms in terms of you know technology companies has the biggest technology companies started way way before everyone else in the world. That digital penetration index is fifty two percent, right? You look at China, which is also incredibly advanced when it comes to technology, but started probably about ten years or fifteen years after the United States. That that index is around twenty percent. You look at India, much less developed country than the United States and China. Uh, but also has been innovating and has tech companies for now, you know, well over a, a decade. That that digital uh, transformation index is around fifteen percent. Now let's look at Latin America. Latin America as a whole, as a region, is at one and a half percent, one tenth of where India is today. Even Brazil, which I mentioned, has has started a little earlier and is probably the most developed uh, ecosystem down here, is only at three percent, right? Less than you know, almost, you know, one twentieth of what the United States is, about a tenth of what China is. Uh, I don't know whether Brazil and Latin America are going to be at the U.S. level or the China level, whatever it is. But I think there's a pretty good argument to say that, look, we have as big of a population as a, as a region. We have much higher GDP per capita. We have much higher uh, usage of technology, right? Our, our Internet penetration rate is higher than China's. Our smartphone penetration rate is comparable to, you know, China, India, getting close to the U.S. Um, so I think it's a good argument to say we're going to be at least at the level that India and China are today, if not much closer to the United States. And remember, all of these numbers are growing. And when you think about the potential for value creation, if Latin America were merely to catch up to India or China, not even to talk about the United States, you're talking about values here that are in the trillions of dollars. Right. So that's the order of magnitude that we're talking about. Obviously, this is not going to happen overnight. This is probably going to happen in the next decade, even decade plus, which is why we always like to take this long term view. I think the important thing, especially when we're in these down markets like we are today, is to think about, you know, venture capital, you know, early stage where Atlantico invests. You're really talking about sort of a 10 year view into the future. And you're going to have insane bull markets like we had last year. You're going to have bear markets like you had this year or we're having uh, this year. But the important thing is that when you zoom out and you look at that 10-year view, that curve is very clearly up and to the right. And it's going to continue going that way as the world becomes more and more digital and as technology companies spring up all over the world. It's not the monopoly of developed countries to have you know, technology companies. Um, and that's a little bit of what our view is, is that you're going to have ups and downs. You have to kind of ride this out. You as an entrepreneur have to adapt to the times in terms of how easy or hard it is to raise capital, how much runway you should be having, how much you should be burning versus thinking about profitability. Um, but if you survive and you kind of keep going, I think the prize is, is massive uh, at the end, uh, sort of at the end of the rainbow. And when you talk about venture capital, right, to, to, to uh, dive, it, dive a little bit into your, into your question, you know, venture capital in the region has evolved enormously. When I started my company, Pace Urbano, just a little over 10 years ago, there was one venture capital fund that existed in the region. That's crazy, right? Like there was, there was no one investing in VC. And that's why most of our investors were, were foreign investors. Today, you already have you know, great names uh, investing here at every stage, uh, at the seed, at the Series A, at the growth stage, with dedicated teams, dedicated pools of capital. You've never had so much dry powder in the region to be able to back really amazing entrepreneurs and amazing companies. So we're very optimistic that even though we're, we're living in a bear market, we're going to continue to see, see funding, right? In, in our case, uh, sort of at, at Atlantico, we, we also feel like venture capital is going to evolve a little bit here. I feel like that what happened 
uh, over the last couple of years is that some of the the early movers into the VC into the VC uh, ecosystem here took an approach to be you know bigger and bigger funds over time. Right, they kind of went down the call it the Andreessen Horowitz playbook of you know more assets under management, more investing, uh, backing more companies, and and I don't think it's necessarily uh, a bad model, but it's one model. I don't think it's the only model, uh, and 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 we always like to think about uh, when we talk to founders that that we're trying to bring something different, right? When you think about what's available today is a lot of sort of that big resort experience to take the, the hotel analogy. You know, going to a great resort is a great experience. You're gonna have a lot of fun. Disney World is great. But what we wanted to bring here was sort of that that boutique, more exclusive, more personalized experience for founders. Um, something more akin to what I think I saw and experienced at, at Benchmark Capital, right? Smaller funds, you know, a uh, smaller number of portfolio companies, but much, much more personalized and, you know, one-on-one experience with, with the partners that are there. I think it's very close to what Sequoia's model is at the early stage. And we think that that kind of got lost over the last 10 years of the venture ecosystem here. Uh, and that's what we, what we brought uh, with Atlantico. I think we, we, we take a perspective of being much more selective. Again, I think that the, the numbers speak for themselves in the last couple of years, we, Invested in a new company, probably an average of one new company every two months. If you take the incumbent venture funds, they invested in a new company every two weeks, right? And there's only so much attention and, and support you can give to founders if you're building these massive and massive uh, portfolios. And we felt like a more selective approach where we can just be available 24-7 is, is what was going to work out. And it's not necessarily for everyone. There's no, there's no right or wrong, but we felt like there were a lot of founders that would want our model. And I think that, again, I think the, the, the numbers speak for themselves. Since inception, we've won every single competitive deal we've participated in. And that's sort of over, over a dozen of those situations. And, and when we ask our portfolio founders how their experience has been, we have an 100, 100% NPS rate, right? Every single one of them highly rec- would highly recommend this to other founders. So we think we're, we're, we're just getting started, but we're definitely down on the right path. And we think that our model is going to be um, one that's going to be more and more in, in demand by founders. We think that the venture capital uh, ecosystem here is going to start looking a lot more like the United States, where you have different firms having different positionings, having different value propositions, so that you you really build out this menu of options where founders can say, hey, I want someone that really understands fintech. And they're going to go to you at Gilgamesh and say, I want that uh, curated, you know, former founders from the fintech world helping me build my companies. And some people are going to say, I want the full service model where there's a lot of companies and big events and a lot of a lot of stuff here and they're going to go to you know Andreessen or they're going to go to other big funds because that's that's right for them and we think that that's the next phase of venture capital in in Latin America. Julio, I don't think anyone listening to this is not going to be excited about Latin America. Thank you for inspiring us. It's been a great episode. Uh, I'm glad that we get to work together and co-invest together and look forward to uh, seeing you in Brazil. Yeah, well, see you soon, Miguel. It was it was great being on, and uh, will be will be awesome to have a drink with you down in São Paulo. Absolutely, thank you, Julio. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Julio Vasconcelos, managing partner at Atlantico. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. 
And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, please, please drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. <laughs>